Hello and welcome back to the So What Are You podcast. Today you'll be hearing from Ana Gabriela Lopez, founder of Chica Mala, an eco-friendly textile and lifestyle shop handcrafted by artisans in her home country of Guatemala. She starts us off with a little history on her childhood growing up in Guatemala, the colorism that exists in the country, and the inspiration she drew from her two strong but very different grandmothers. Anna then talks about her transition from Guatemala to Gilroy, California, some of the struggles she faced fitting in, and how she noticed that more opportunities came her way as she made friends that were white or white passing. Finally, she tells us how all this led to her starting a social impact business called Chica Mala, which uses a unique business model focused on equity and providing significant financial opportunities to the indigenous Guatemalan women of her home country. Please enjoy this episode and visit shopchicamala.com to find beautiful home goods like pillows, rugs, and blankets made with love in Guatemala. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you both for having me. Yes. Um, tell us about yourself, Anna. Who are you? Where'd you grow up? Let's start there and, and, and just go from there. Yeah. So my full name is Anna Gabriela Lopez Racinos, and I actually claimed it back because when I moved to the U.S., I became Anna Lopez, and that always felt just too short of a name for me, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, I was born and raised in Guatemala City, um, but I do have family from all across Guatemala. So, you know, my childhood, um, I spent most of my time in my home in the city, but then all of my holidays and my summers um, in the coastal towns of San Antonio, where my mom is from uh, and my mom's family. Right. When I was 11, I moved to Gilroy, California, which is in the Bay Area mm -hmm. in Northern California, close to you guys in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I went to college, I went to college in UC Irvine. Um, so I moved out here to Southern California. That's where I met you. And then now I'm living in Los Angeles and I'm really loving it here. The diversity and actually the, the neighborhood that I'm at is very prominent with Guatemalans and Salvadorian people. Mm -hmm. So that's been really cool. cool to go down the street and be able to get a tamal from Guatemala or, you know, a chuchito, wow. which is like a little appetizer that we have in Guatemala. Um, so it's nice. been a nice reconnecting with that culture. But what neighborhood is that? Jefferson Park in Los Angeles is close to oh, West okay. Adams. Yeah, very, very Latinx cool. community. So it's been really, really nice to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I knew it was going to be extremely diverse. It's primarily Black and Latinx. So I was super stoked to get a little change of scenery. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. What's Guatemala like? Mm -hmm. Just like for the everyday person, I'm sure there's different areas that have different levels of socioeconomic whatever. So yeah, just hoping to learn like the basics about Guatemala. Yeah, absolutely. So Guatemalan is still definitely a developing country, um, but it's, it, it's gorgeous. There, there is a lot of poverty, right? And you can see it immediately. If you were to travel to Guatemala and you were to, you know, drive into Antigua or any of the famous um, areas for tourism, you would be driving through, you know, a variety of socioeconomic statuses. You'd drive through, you know, nicer areas, but then you'd see poverty on the side of the streets from the very first time that you fly in. And actually mm. just recently when we went this past November, um, I looked out the window and you see all these, all this greenery, right? Because Guatemala still has a ton of greenery. It's actually a ton of places that are protected by you know, by the environmental organizations. Um, and it's all this greenery, but then you also see a ton of houses, you know, stacked on top of each mm -hmm. other that are, you know, with metal covers. So there's definitely still, um, amongst all the beauty, still a ton of, unfortunately, government corruption and poverty as well. So when you were growing up there, where did you land within this spectrum of 
socioeconomic status or kind of where you live, who you live with, if you have siblings, what that kind of looked like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So in Guatemala is and all Latinx cultures is very normal for you to live with within a multi-generational, you know, Yep, situation, yep. right? So for me, we had, um, our home was in Zona Cinco, which doesn't really mean anything to y'all, but it's within the, <laughs> the city, right? Like the capital of, of the country. Um, my house was basically on top of my grandparents' house. So downstairs, it was my grandfather, my grandma, and my aunt, and then her dog, <laughs> who I really loved. <laughs> and then upstairs, it was me, my dad, and my mom for six and a half years. And then my my little brother came um, after six and a half years of me begging for a little brother. So I would say <laughs> our family, I mean, it, it varies, right? On my, on my mom's side, we were, I guess, middle class. Uh, I guess all across, we were middle class. But for my growing up, I, I did really always notice my parents making sacrifices financially to make sure that that wouldn't be my situation, right? Like there, there was definitely a lot of privilege in my upbringing and the ability to send me to private education, right? Um, which is all, almost needed in Guatemala, just based on the funding that we get from the government for public education. So I did get to okay. go to a private all-girls Catholic school um, out there in uh, Guatemala. So if you could imagine, very, very Catholic, uh, yeah. you know, socks all the way up to my knees, skirts yes. like just above it, the little sweater totally. and the little vest, uh, blue, gray, white, <laughs> and dark gray. That was that was the colors that we used. So wow. very formal, <laughs> very formal, it's very formal. Yeah, but you know, um, my grandpa. I mean, I come from a line of when I look at my ancestors and just people that came before me, I can see parts of me in them. Like my great grandmother, for example, on my father's side, um, I mean, this was what growing up in the 30s in Guatemala, like talk about lack of opportunity for a woman, right? In, in Guatemala at that time, she managed to be an owner of a ton of um, gas stations. Like she randomly ended up owning gas stations. I don't really know exactly what the story is and how she got into that work. And of course, now I would tell her, great grandmother, don't be in like the fossil fuel industry, you know, but yeah, back then we didn't know better. Right. And she made a life for herself and was able to really generate wealth for herself as a divorced, uh, technically single mom at that time. So that was different. Right. And then my grandmother on my mom's side, she was indigenous. So she wore, you know, the traditional clothing um, that some of my partners still wear today. So Mm -hmm. it was this two different cultures, right? Like, I mean, for for me, what you described me as is mestiza. You learned that, you know, in middle school and elementary school, it's basically a mix of Spanish and indigenous blood. Um, And Mm that happens from you know, the colonization, that's a a word I can't always pronounce because of my ESL, but, you know, that happened during that period of time when uh, Europeans and Spanish came to Guatemala, which is, by the way, something that we learned so bluntly in Guatemala. Like we get the actual history and like know exactly what happened and we don't see it as like this like positive, like we found this, like, you know, like, and then Cristobal came and found this land. Like we don't see it like that. We've taught it in a very this is how our country was impacted by what happened, yeah. right? But we also got mm. such a beautiful silver lining of all of that is we got such a beautiful, unique culture in Guatemala that's a beautiful mix of, you know, the Spanish colonial lifestyle. Like if you walk through Antigua, Guatemala, it looks like you're walking in the middle of Spain with that mm. really rich mix of Mayan roots um, that we get, you know, across our, our people. So we have a, a spectrum of, you know, Spanish and indigenous and, um, you know, that's our, basically our diversity out there. So where did the concept of emigrating to the U.S. come from? And was that always the plan? Yeah. So that was not the plan. Actually, we had our residency card because my grandparents on my mom's side, um, they ended up moving here at a very early age. So they left my mom when she was a little girl to live with my aunt and my uncle Um, And so my mom had been exposed to immigration from a very young age and she missed her family, you know, like her grand, her dad and mom would come back to Guatemala maybe once a year. Right. Um, But they had to come out here to support their eight 
kids, right? My my mom is one wow. of eight. So, um, you know, they took half of her siblings with them and then they left the younger half or, you know, half of them back. And she was one of the ones that stayed back. And so they were all separated from, you know, there were two siblings here, two siblings here. Like one of them was older and was on their own. And then the other few, you know, went to um, to the U.S. I think in New York is where my, my grandparents landed mm-hmm. um, and just worked different production jobs to send money back to Guatemala. Um, for us specifically, no, it wasn't necessarily planned. We had a residency card, so we had the opportunity to and actually technically have to be living here, right? Like in order to keep that residency. So we would travel back every single year to visit my family in Los Angeles, which again, back then it seemed like a trip to go see family, but I didn't know that we were actually doing it to keep our ability to move here, you know? Um, And now realizing how huge of a privilege that is in the first place, you know, to be able to have that type of travel and that type of opportunity to just if anything ever happens, move out here. Right. And something did happen right after nine 11, when the recession happened, uh, my dad is an agronomist. So he does um, basically engineering with chemicals and seeds. Um, so he grows crops. Uh, there's a ton of that work in Northern California. I think I heard one of your friends uh, on the podcast, he, he does that type of work. Um, so, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So my dad, actually, he worked for a company called Goldsmith Seeds. Um, the company is headquartered in Gilroy, California, and they have a small, uh, or not a small, they have a huge production plant in Guatemala. And then they had a few other ones in other places, you know, in the world, uh, Kenya, I think, and Australia. Um and actually, my dad working in the Guatemala plant, um, when the, you know, when the recession happened, he lost his job and he was able to make a move to the Gilroy headquarters with his job because they liked him so much. So we actually just saw um, his former boss when we went out to launch my business and have our wedding in Guatemala. We just saw them and you know, it was such a good like reconnection because we hugged and we talked about how our lives and my life completely changed because of a nice boss that was just able to make that extra like effort to help his yeah. laid off employee make the move into the Gilroy headquarters. But that was in 2001 and I was in third grade. And I remember him leaving alone, right? Like he left in 2001 and left us behind when I was 10 years old for a year. So I remember, you know, like dad's not home for a year. Like this is kind of weird, but you know, I'm still living, living my life, going to my school, going to my birthday parties. Right. Like it wasn't as horrible as a situation because I still had my grandparents and my mom, but I did miss my dad a ton. Right. And I knew that he was doing this for us. But what came as a surprise is we thought he was going to leave for a couple of years during the recession and then come back. And then we were going to resume our lives, you know, in Guatemala And once he came here and kind of got a lay of the land and settled in, he then wanted to bring my mom with him and maybe have me and my uh, brother stay back with my grandparents. Um, But he and like my mom ended up saying, no, it's either all of us or none of us, because, you know, she went through that with her family. Right. Like she had that separation from her parents. Um at a very critical time in her upbringing. So she didn't want that for me and my brother. Um, but that was so hard, you know, because growing up the first five years of my life, those, those are like the biggest development years for a human, right? Like those first five years when you're born and until you're five. Um, I can say like those five years, it's weird when kids like say they have memories, you know, because you're never actually know if they're actual memories or if it's something that someone told you and you're just picturing in your head. But to me, I can tell you, I can draw the house where I grew up and I can like tell you, like, I can like close my eyes and like walk through it, you know? And like, I get emotional about this because I grew up with just so much support and so much love. Those first five years, I think, really defined the kind of human that I am and that I want to be, you know, because I saw so many examples of just selfless leadership, you know, like Mm -hmm. with my grandfather and my grandma and so many different like scenarios, right, for women, like my great grandmother, who was like this entrepreneur doing like insane things for a woman in her time frame. 
in the 30s, right, in Guatemala, which is a super macho country. (laughs) My mom and my dad both, like, being super, like, being professionals, right, and, like, working long hours, and then me spending so much time with my grandparents and my aunt, right? Like, my grandpa, you know, he always talked about this um, trip to Japan and how much he loved the Japanese culture. Like, I I genuinely love the Japanese culture because my grandpa would, (laughs) instead of telling me thank you or, like, hello, like, he would greet me in Japanese and he would say thank you in Japanese because this trip like this trip defined him in so many ways like he was one of the first five um Central American air traffic controllers to go learn you know just new technology in Japan and so I have this like book that was displayed at my wedding and that's sitting on my you know on my living room mantle just with all of his photos from Japan and how much he loved that culture so I would say those five years, like I still have those very deep memories that, you know, I can't tell you I have those deep memories during like even like more recent years. Right. But like those years, I mean, they were just like filled with so much like support and happiness and it molded me, you know, to be who I am. And I think this past couple of years during the pandemic, it's helped me kind of reconnect with that time period. Right. And analyze like why I think the way I think and like why I feel the way I feel. And mm-hmm. my mom is a total empath. So I, te- mm-hmm. I get this, you know, like this emotions from her, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was hurting too much. Right. During the pandemic, it was hurting too much and I wanted to do too much and I didn't know what to do. And that's how this came about. That That's how, you know, my business Chikamala like came about just out of wanting wow. to do something so bad. And then, finding that opportunity like so close to me with, you know, artisans that we had met in 2019. And in some way that's me like changing their opportunities mm-hmm. and like seeing my great grandmother that wasn't able to have her business, you know, because she was indigenous, but my Spanish grandmother was able to have those opportunities. So mm-hmm. now it's thinking of the other grandmother, right? Like, Mm. Yeah, the stuff that she didn't have and you know the poverty that she went through and seeing you know her legacy and like how honestly that part of the family is even closer to each other and I think sometimes mm. like hard moments like make that happen you know and there's still just Definitely. so much so much to thank her um yeah <laughs> that's a little bit about that wow. time period no that I really appreciate your your vulnerability in talking about that that's i I can see how that is extremely impactful on your life and that note you said at the end about like how you know crushing it in entrepreneurship and maybe having certain privileges and then the indigenous grandma not having them those opportunities yeah yeah what what leads to that uh inequality? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, similarly to what you, I guess, would think of when, and I don't really understand much about like Native American culture, but it's the same exact thing, right? That happened Mm -hmm. in Central America, uh, just with different Native and Indigenous communities, right? Like when Mm -hmm. uh, colonization happened, like that, like that demographic of people were the ones that were stripped of all of their resources. Right. And colorism, although there's, you know, you, when I moved to America and I guess we can get into that a little bit later too, but when I moved here, I immediately landed and I immediately saw the disparities and differences between people of color and white people. You know, I noticed that people that looked like me or that were black were in positions that were more in service or, you know, just, uh, frontline positions, like, and then other pe- white people, right, were in, like, the positions that you would want to be in, like, lawyers, doctors, like, all, all yeah. these things, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a very easy, like, thing to to notice, right, when I first right. moved here. Um, in Guatemala, it's basically, there's still racism. There's racism everywhere, right? I think that's, like, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the thing we need to just understand and to be able yeah. to move forward and, and unlearn. Uh, but in Guatemala, there's colorism primarily. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, it's, it's racism still towards indigenous communities, but it's primarily 
based off of colorism, right? Like I'm thinking those European features or European, um, you know, even with the beauty industry, right? Like all of the features that are promoted are European like beauty style. Mm -hmm. So the more, I guess, light skin that you are as a Latino, like the more opportunities that you get and that you can notice that in Guatemala too, you know? Um, and, and I guess now I can like reflect back to even my own lineage and my own ancestry, right? Like my great grandmothers having come from the same town and having completely different lives and completely different paths, right. That were already set up for them. It it wasn't like they had a choice at that point. And I could see how that very clear comparison like can leave such a strong imprint on someone because you can you can just see it and their fa- and their blood mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you're like i know all the factors that went into these two people and somehow this person's doing this this person's doing that it's like it's like a very clear lesson in like colorism or racism whatever you want to call it um but yeah thank you for sharing that background just because i think that will help color the rest of the conversation. Um, And obviously, I know I hadn't heard any of that backstory. So that's, uh, appreciate you sharing that. Um, Would love to hear about like what that transition was like from Guatemala to uh, Gilroy. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, you know, I remember, again, another memory that I vividly remember that um, I remember being in a and at a pool party with my friends over the summer because we have different school, you know, uh, calendar years. Um, and I remember telling them like, oh, okay, see you guys in fifth, like, see you guys in fifth grade, right? Like, so excited <laughs> to see them again because <laughs> we had been just apart yeah. for, for summer. And then it was so sudden. I don't really remember. I guess my parents didn't thoroughly explain that that year that my dad was there, he was actually like setting you know, setting ground for us to come later. Or maybe maybe I don't remember them thoroughly explaining that to me because maybe I blocked it out of my brain at that point, you know, like thinking like there's no freaking way that they're going to make me leave my grandma and my grandpa that I lived with my whole life, you know? So that was like, imagine, I, I think, right? Like, and I've talked to this, to my mom about this, but I think that the way she felt by not having her parents around because of, the lack of opportunity that we had in Guatemala and them leaving her behind. I think that's how I felt about my grandparents, but the other way around, mm-hmm. like at that point mm-hmm. I was leaving them for opportunity or I guess mm-hmm. not even for my opportunity or you don't really vision it that way when you're that age, you know? Yeah. So I didn't understand why, you know, I, I was so sad. I wasn't excited. <laughs> I was, I didn't want to yeah. make the move, you know, um, now looking Did back. Did you know anyone? I did not like know. Well, we knew we had family here, but they were in Nevada, Vegas, and then we had some in LA, but we were moving to Gilroy, right? Um, I didn't have any family close by to me, like no one. Um, but my aunt randomly ended up moving to the US too, and she landed in San Jose. So that was super lucky because we've been able to okay. bring our families together. But I mean, I could tell my grandpa, we were his everything, you know, like I was my grandparents' everything, and so was my, my brother. And, you know, my grandpa died five years after I left. And then my grandma died seven years after that. Right. So I always think like my grandpa maybe died of a broken heart, just having his whole family like leave, you know, and that was the hardest part. Just like I remember when I moved, um, I remember calling my grandparents every time that I had a bad day at school. Right. Like Mm. and now looking back and thinking of those moments like that was like racism within kids, right? Like that was learned behavior that they had from their parents. Like when I first moved to Gilroy, I didn't really find my fit for that first half a year. First and foremost, I skipped half a year of fifth grade. So for some, for some reason, that's how I got lined up to where I moved here, finished fourth grade. And then I skipped to the middle of fifth grade. Uh, and then uh, based on my age, so I guess I started school earlier in Guatemala or something, based on my age, uh, they told me that I could go straight into sixth grade, which would be middle school. And my mom was like, no, let's just start her in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Let's you just, just finish fourth grade. grade. <laughs> so I did middle fifth grade. And that year, I mean, I got, I, I, I got bullied, you know, like um, I wasn't accepted by, Gilroy is a big community of 
uh, Latinx and then white people. There's not really like a ton of other diversity, some, but like very minimal with, uh, you know, the Latinx girls that I wanted to connect with, like try to speak Spanish with, like, they were like, Oh, you're Guatemalan. Like you're not Mexican. (laughs) Like don't, don't talk to us. You know, you're, you're a fresa or like a preppy girl. Right. And then with, with white people, like I couldn't, I couldn't connect with them because I didn't know the language. So I remember one friend, Cecilia, um, which I actually, you know, we ended up going to different middle schools and, and high schools. So I'm not connected with her anymore, but I, I wish I could find her contact info. I haven't been able to find her, but she was my only friend in fifth grade. Like we would just sit together and we're kind of, <laughs> she would actually be nice. You know, she was that kind person that like, you know, like talked to the girl that was getting bullied and whatnot. And so that was Cecilia Latinx. Yeah, Cecilia was Mexican. Yeah, she was she was a more quiet girl, like kept to herself. And you can just tell she just had a kind heart and like saw beyond that silly stuff, you know? Yeah. And like, look, that was a really tough transition period. I mean, I didn't know the language, although we we learned it in in Guatemala, right? Like I would take like private tutoring for English. And then also uh, at school, they would teach it, but it's never the same, right? Like I knew how to maybe ask to go to the bathroom and like say what my name was, right? And like ask for directions, but that was about it. Um, So yeah, that time period, although it was difficult, I think it definitely also was a very definite, like defining moment for me. Um, I mean, I had to be resourceful, right? I had to be resilient. I had to network my ass off to try and find friends. Um, I had to stand up for myself because I wasn't used to this like treatment. So I had to stand up for myself and defend myself. And I got to just learn, you know, that not all kids, not all kids are going to be kind, you know, and um, was the treatment you got primarily around like, was it like racism or was it like just like new girl at school or a combination of everything? Uh, were there any like specific instances where it's like, it's because you're Guatemalan, like, you know what I mean? So back then, I guess I wasn't seeing it in that light. You know, I think now reflecting, yeah. you're like, wow, those girls like really needed like some self-work or I hope they grew up to be yeah. better. Right. Like whatever. But I, uh, I guess it was, I mean, it was racism, right? Like they didn't want yeah. to hang out with someone because they didn't speak the language and they were from a different country back then. I right. didn't see it that way. I just saw it as like, man, I can't find my, my fit. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so many, so many fits that I could have because now I'm seeing there's, you know, punks and <laughs> like yeah. and athletic people. Like I went through all these different like weird stages of my childhood <laughs> trying to fit in, um, you know, and I think in middle school is when I started realizing. So we had a um, my best friends ended up being from my my dad's work goldsmith seeds right like the company that ended up bringing him over um i happened to meet uh one of the daughters of the or one of the granddaughters of the business her name is molly goldsmith fast forward to 2021 molly is actually one of my best friends and she was my maid of honor so there's this really deep connection yeah with her and my other friend lily who, who i met at a picnic right at a company picnic and then I went to middle school and, you know, that's where we became friends. They were, they went to a different middle school, but we would always have sleepovers and, and things like that. But I started also noticing like, hey, like the more I'm connected to white people, like the better situations I somehow find myself in. Like, yeah, what a coincidence, right? Isn't that crazy? And then you hear like, I mean, there's literally still people in my parents' generation that tell their daughters, like their Latina daughters or whatever to go and find a white man. Like that is true. <laughs> and and yeah. I resented so much, so much. Right. Like, but yeah. because you, you tend to notice like, okay, white equals success. And that's just yeah. unfortunately learned behavior that I'm now rationalizing and dissecting from the past. Right. Like me mm-hmm. and like my defense mechanism and survival instinct was like, things are going well with Lily and Molly. Like, and when I hang out around, people that are white, like, is there more opportunities here? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I found wanting to fit in so much more important at that time, right? Like during high school, like getting called like preppy or like 
whitewashed, mm. you know, like that would sometimes yeah. even be like a good thing. And like now look, yeah. even, yeah. even yeah. thinking of that and like remembering that I cringe, I cringe. Yeah. It's just so much self-work that like we've gone through and like unlearning that we've gone through that yeah. is so silly for a 12 year old and 13 year old to think that way and to feel that way, you know, like, oh, when I'm with these people, I get more opportunity or I get more yeah. exposure into things that I want in my life. Right. Like I would go to my friend's mm-hmm. house and be like, damn, I want this house. Like I want a house like this one, you know? So Mm -hmm. just, I don't know, so much learning this past couple of years. I was talking um, to Faraz over the phone and, you know, we talked about the last two years just being a time of like reconnecting so proudly to your culture because Mm -hmm. for so long we were just aiming to fit in, right? Like we were just aiming to fit in. And I think UC Irvine, I don't know if you felt the same way, but UC Mm -hmm. Irvine was... Oh, such a breath of fresh air, right? Like in high school mm. was high school was great for me. Like by then, by the way, like it wasn't just a sad story. Like my immigration right. experience, it was hard at first, but God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything, right? Like the opportunities mm. that right. I have now and the life that I have now, I would have never been able to, to have in Guatemala. And that's just the reality. And so yep. I have this pressure and like this responsibility to make things better for future generations, not just here in the US, but also in Guatemala. And I feel responsibility for that. But I've Mm -hmm. also had the opportunity to look back. And although I had so many great friendships in high school, when Miriam Escalera came into my life and in high school, right, as like my one of my first like Mexican friends, like that gave me life, you know, like just having someone Mm -hmm. that I had similar life experiences with, you know, and like, and then my network started ex- expanding though, right? Like, and I still have those best friends um, now, but in college, like I see my group of friends and it's like all Latinas, all like, you know, like diverse yeah. people, like um, primarily women of color. That's who I'm best friends yeah. with from college, right? And I see that strong yeah. bond and connection and like similar like life experiences that it's just funny how you go stage by stage trying to like fit in mm-hmm. and then just ultimately just, wow, your superpower is just being you. Like that's yeah. if I wish <laughs> I could just oh, shake yeah. the little Anna and just be like, yeah, you're okay to hang out with these girls, but like also like enjoy yourself and embrace yourself because yeah. that's what makes them love you. Right. Like don't try to be mm-hmm. like them. You can be their friends, but still be like you, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think that was a big, I guess, transition period for me, too, because going from UC Irvine, I stayed in Orange County after to work Mm -hmm. for my company. And I thought like, oh, Orange County is just so diverse and I love it here. (laughs) (laughs) This is so diverse. And like, I love my college experience. (laughs) And then I go to corporate America in Orange County. And I'm like, wait, where are all my diverse? <laughs> where did everyone go? <laughs> where did everyone go? <laughs> um, and, and that's a whole new different life, you know, like navigating corporate America as a Latina is, you know, everything you hear, right? Like we're called aggressive. We're called, you yeah. know, like sassy, like all these mm-hmm. things that you're just not used to seeing in a brown woman. And mm-hmm. I for the first six years, we'll say regressed back to my little Anna middle school, high school girl, right. That wanted to fit in. And I think again, 2020 happened. And from then to now I'm done, I'm done trying to fit in. Like, it's not okay to want to move through life, wanting to fit in. Like you have to find spaces that welcome you, or you have to create spaces that Mm-hmm. will welcome you. And I think ultimately that's what I'm doing, right? It's like, I'm still navigating corporate America and I'm so thankful for the opportunities that I've gotten from corporate America, but it's been a challenge. Like it's been a challenge to work harder than everybody else to show your worth. You know, it's been a challenge to not seem aggressive or like too much when I'm voicing my opinion. It's been a challenge to stand up to blatant racism, right? Because you sometimes hear microaggressions that to you feel like racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's been a challenge. But it's also those experiences from my early childhood moving to the States built me to be able to. Sure, there are challenges that other races maybe might not see or women of color are definitely 
you know, they don't have the same opportunities, no matter what, statistically speaking, right? And we get paid less for the work that we do. But that doesn't have to be the narrative. It could change, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. that's what I'm trying to do in, in my nine to five. And then on off my nine to five, that's what I'm trying to build, right? With with my business, uh, Chica Mala. So, yeah. Wow. Hearing all this context, hearing how impactful that experience you had in Guatemala is and like that connection you have and the responsibility you feel to like your country of origin. Like it's super helpful to hear that. Um, and I think it, it like transitions nicely into and helps me understand what led to your, your business Chica Mala, which is what uh, I apologize if that pronunciation super, super bad, but um, yeah, you've started a business. You mentioned a couple times, but now I want to really get into it because I think it's amazing. Like I'm, if you, no one can see the video right now, but both Anna and I are both rocking our Chica Mala jackets, and I'm a huge fan. So let's hear about how it came to be um, from becoming a business owner to it being Chica Mala um, to what your plans are. So, yeah, I'll start from the beginning. I guess uh, I touched on generational wealth, right? And that being a huge importance for me, not out of materialism or out of greed. I actually live way below my means. And that's just how I learned, you know, financial responsibility from my parents because they were maybe coming from a space of scarcity as opposed to a space of, you know, you know, just, yeah, abundance. Exactly. Um, so I'm trying to reframe my brain too to learn how to take risks. And I think some of those risks earlier on in my career, like seven and a half years ago, is just making it a responsibility for me to learn investing and just how to grow your money and how to and you know, I've always been a huge proponent on having young people try it to find multiple streams of income to be able to have that financial freedom earlier in their lives, right? Like you see and you hear, and in my industry, you definitely see it, right? You see people in their seventies working in jobs that they've never wanted to do. And that's just because that was the opportunities that they had back then. Right. But to me, it all gets tied back to my culture and my upbringing and the sacrifices that my parents make and moving their lives in their mid thirties. I mean, I'm not even at the age that they are, they were at when they decided to move their kids and their lives from a big home to a two-bedroom apartment where the kids will be sharing a room till they're well into their years where they should not be sharing a room with their <laughs> yeah. little brother, you know? Like I think yeah. of those like my mom, right? Like coming to America and having to learn English and work a production job on the third shift when she was the director of her social work program in Guatemala and having mm. that lack of ego, you know, to like, yeah, she didn't have that, you know, like any other person would be like resentful, angry, like sad, but she made it work for herself and she did it for her family. And then now she's in the role that she used to be in Guatemala. Right. So just seeing Mm. those, like my dad, like the, the fact that his own career and work made this possible. Right. And I look around, I look at my house that I'm sitting in and that I bought in LA and I'm like, holy crap, like I own a home in LA. Like that's because of my dad. Like my family owns a home in the Bay area. Like how the hell did they do it? Like they came in their, like in their mid thirties and they, he wasn't making like a crazy salary at that point. You know, he had to still take some steps back. So I've always come from a family that values just making sure that the next generation is going to be better off than you. Um, And so for me, multiple streams of income was always in the plan. I just didn't know why, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody that wants to start a business like and is so eager for it, they just have to find that thing that finally clicks. But that had been me for the last seven years. Um, And then finally, I'm getting married in Guatemala. I'm specifically picking Guatemala, right? This is pre-pandemic. So think pre-pandemic years when we actually used to plan trips and whatnot. But (laughs) (laughs) pre-pandemic year, I specifically chose Guatemala to bring my closest friends to see my country, right? Think of the era, Um, right? Like this was like a couple years or a year after 
44 or whatever number he was. 45. I can't even say his name. <laughs> yeah. uh, called literally my country a shambles. Like that, that was like the countries he was yeah, re- referring was, to were Central yeah. American countries. And like, right? Like that was just the type of verbiage mm. that I was seeing at the highest level of leadership in the U.S. Like I was just so astonished, like just so shocked during that whole period. Like, wow. We really did that. We really chose that person to be in that level of leadership. If that's not yes, white privilege, did. and if that doesn't yeah. create a revolution, what will, right? Like, of course yeah. that created a, a revolution. We had a freaking, yeah. like, what, like reality star as our president? That was <laughs> nuts to me. But anywho, yeah. Um, yeah, after but, that, yeah. I specifically chose Guatemala because I wanted my family, my best friends to come see how beautiful the country is and to not think mm-hmm. of it as, you know, a dangerous third world country, but thinking of mm-hmm. it as yeah. this gorgeous comp- this gorgeous uh, country that has so much potential and is beautiful already. And with the tourism that we're bringing, that's going to help communities there, right? And so I was super mm-hmm. pumped, built like, you know, helping them, the economy, like bringing, a, and the first wedding was going to be 198 people are going to go to it. So that's a lot of spending for Guatemala. And I was, I was yeah. pumped. I was telling all my friends like spend, 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 like buy all the, buy all the things, yeah. like stay longer if you need to like go to Lake Atitlan. And so we went on a trip in 2019 to go check out, you know, where we were going to get married. I already knew Antigua, right. But we also wanted to show my husband and his sister, uh, Lake Atitlan, which is the most gorgeous lake in the world. I mm. coined it as the eighth wonder of the world during my launch Love speech. It. We'll spread it. <laughs> yes. So spread it. Um, but when I was there, I remember going to a co-op of 35 indigenous women and we met the owners and we met the, you know, the people that work there, right? Like obviously it's BIPOC led. Um, the organization leaders are all indigenous women, right? And the only requirement for them to be able to join this co-op is that they will send their kids to school. The second that their kids aren't going to school, they're no no longer able to be in the co-op. So mm-hmm. it prioritized education specifically for indigenous yeah. kids around the lake, right? And this was the first co-op that we ever did business with. Um, they were in Lake Atitlan. A, a co-op? What would you explain a co-op yeah. as? Yeah. It's a business that's owned basically by multiple people. So it, this one specifically is represented by 35 families. So each person that works for the co-op is representing 35 member or 35 families, basically. So there were 35 families that were impacted by the co-op. They were, I mean, everything, everything that they do, all the products that they sell at their own shop are done use utilizing, uh, you know, cultural weaving techniques that our ancestors used to use. Like they come from, you know, Mayan times, La Diosa Excel, which we actually have a headband called the Excel headband. Ixchel was the goddess, the Mayan goddess of femininity, fertility, weaving, um, you know, and a ton of other things that were, she was the main Mayan goddess, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. And she, legend has it, uh, taught the grandmothers how to weave using the footloom. And then their, the grandmothers taught their daughters, their daughters taught their daughters. And then those are the weaving techniques that we're still using in Guatemala in those areas for our textiles. So everything is handmade, hand, you know, it's dyed with natural elements of the earth. Um, and for me, it was very important to reconnect with them during the pandemic because when we were out there, they told our family, um, you know, they just kind of taught us about their business, right? And the fact that tourism, they depend on tourism a ton. Um, you know, it takes them sometimes a month, right? Like your jacket, like the production for those jackets could be anywhere between a month and more right like i can't just mm-hmm. order like hey send me 25 of these like they have to like the whole process for it it's it's explained on the website and you can see it but haspe which is what most of our things are made um mm-hmm. is the art form that that most of our things are made from i mean you're literally spinning the cotton <laughs> you're you're starting from wow. like picking the cotton to spinning the cotton to tying it to dyeing it to weaving it and the weaving oh, technique wow comes out in these shapes, right? That you see on your jacket. So it's basically like tie-dye done backwards. Like I tried doing it and I'm, I'm just, I was horrible. Like the whole, all of the family were laughing at me when I was trying it. It's time consuming. It's, you know, it's labor intensive. Um, 
And it requires tourism, right? Because it's not like they have business entities out here to be able to sell in the U.S., right? So when the pandemic happened and I saw how affected my vendors, my wedding vendors were, I thought of them. I immediately thought of them. And I I actually didn't even think of the business at the time. This was March 2020. I just said to myself, Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to call them and just see if I can somehow get some stuff shipped to me, like a couple rugs, like just to get them through the couple weeks that were going to be closed down, right? <laughs> a couple mm-hmm. weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then we ended up talking, we're designing these products for my home. Like obviously for like in my mind, I'm like, I'm doing custom designs so that they can get paid and hopefully this will hold yeah. them over. Sorry, and sorry to cut you off, but at this point, was it just, you know, an act of service or was it like a the beginning of, oh, I want to create a business? Yeah. So in 2018, that was just our, our first time, or 2019, that was just our first time meeting where we learned about their mission, their families, and like what the money goes to, right? That time around, I bought like $500 worth of stuff and my mom got like $300 worth of like, we all were like buying, 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 you know, that was just mm-hmm. out of us wanting to help the co-op. Um, in 2020, when the pandemic happened, that was just going to start out as an act of service. Actually, I didn't have it planned for it to got become it. what it had become. I thought to myself, like, hey, these their stuff is gorgeous. I might as well just like custom make things for my house and they can have some work as we're figuring this stuff yeah. out. And then we realized, right. And like, we would hear the news out here and it, it wasn't going to end. So, um, e-commerce was blowing up at the time. There's $1.7 trillion in Latinx spend on a year to year basis now. So I thought to myself, when I read those stats and I started diving into e-commerce, learning about Shopify, mm-hmm. that's when it clicked. I was like, Holy crap. But wait, they can't have this business out here, but I can. And I could be their representative Mm -hmm. and I can help them. And all of these designs that we did for me and for my house and some of the proprietary designs that they have that I sourced on my previous trip, that could be it. That could be the start. And so I wasn't going to do apparel. Apparel is not my strength, you know, but... We decided to just stick with the jackets and then most of the stuff is going to be um, for the home because one, I'm in this period of time where I love just designing and buying like, you know, handmade beautiful things for, for the home and then having the mm-hmm. ability to now create products that, you know, one could create representation for people. Cause when I first got my home, I wanted to find pillows that like represented me and I just couldn't find yeah. any like. Any Latinx like pillows, you know, like or the colors that I wanted, the patterns that I wanted, I couldn't find them. Um, and then I've always hated fast fashion, like the whole H and M, Zara, like no, you know, yeah. I've, 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 everybody falls into it, but I, I see what the damage is going to be, you know, later on. Mm. And so I've always yeah. been a quality over quantity person. Um, and so, yeah, when the pandemic happened, I reconnected with this team of 35 women, uh, primarily with the leader. Um, her name's Clementina. And we started working together on creating products. And I actually went out there in March um, after I had gotten vaccinated. Um, and I met with another uh, co-op that I had been working mm-hmm. with virtually this whole time. Wow. Um, so that wow. was the hardest thing, too. It was like quality control, right? Making sure that you know, figuring out like the fair trade cost, the shipping cost, you know, I met a logistics team out there. And now I work with like one of the best logistics teams in Guatemala. Um, The relationship building was the most important thing. And that was trust, right? Because they were trusting their businesses to somebody that they barely knew, right? Like they barely knew me. They they didn't have to believe that I had, you know, good intentions or anything like that. Um, but they did out of survival, right? Like you go back to that survival instinct and this is what you have to do. So, um, we figured it out. We created some proprietary designs for Chicamala, right? We don't want to be just like any other company that does this type of work. We want to have our own pieces. Um, so, you know, ever since March of 2020, we've been in constant communication, creating new products, bouncing off ideas, sending photos of some of their products that they already had that they thought would maybe fit the vibe of Chikamala. So we do have mixed um, of proprietary designs for them. And then most of our products are proprietary to us. Um, but that's been even fun, you know, just like getting yeah. getting to pick the colors, getting to pick the Haspe designs, getting to learn about like the cultural 
meaning of weaving within those communities, right? Um, and learning about them and learning about, you know, their people. That's been like the most fun part. Um, yeah. How, How does, does like your like business model work? Because you're like working with, it sounds like you're working with co-ops. Mm-hmm. So do you have to like create some unique business model that, that yeah. works for them or? Yeah. So right now I work with 78 artisans. So we started at 35 wow. and we've expanded our team to 78 artisans, um, different co-ops do different things. So I work with three different co-ops, two of them mm-hmm. do textile work. Um, and then, uh, one of them does ceramics. And then I also work with two individual artists. One of them does macrame pieces. And then the other one does Mayan art, uh, using watercolors and acrylics, um, which I have some pieces that I can show you guys. So that's going to go on the website soon, but, um, it was all organic. I mean, things, it's been kind of weird because I am a very like process driven person, like in my nine to five with, I, I I do business development. So obviously, you know, for me utilizing technology, sales navigator, right? Like uh, a CRM that we get, uh, that we have access to, like, that's my constant business way, like, you know, business process. Um, with this kind of business is completely different, right? Like I'm not cold calling into businesses. I'm I'm (laughs) genuinely building strong relationships before we even talk business, you know? So, um, yes, the three co-ops that we work with, we create different products with each of them that are specifically Chica Mala products. And then the, uh, two artists that I work with, they sell their products and I represent them here in the U S so they send me their products and then I have them at my pop-ups and we sell them through Chica Mala. Um, yeah. Very cool. I just, uh, I mean, I haven't said too much on this podcast, but I, it mostly because, uh, I really am struck by kind of your drive and dedication to kind of connect with your culture, help, your people and, you know, kind of find your purpose through something that's so difficult and hard. I can't imagine that this is easy. I have not created a business on my own. And, uh, and I could maybe with my private practice for work, but I don't out of just pure, um, you know, maybe lack of dedication or fear of what, you know, will come with that and the anxiety of, of building something on my own. And, and so just listening to you kind of talk about it and have this platform to talk about why you're doing these things and how you're doing it and just to kind of hear the passion in your voice when you talk about it and just the importance of your family and how grateful you are for everything that you've gone through and been given and also what you're creating for yourself I think is really unique in your story and I'm super appreciative that you're sharing it with us because from another woman of color to hear your experience I think is very motivating um, for me to know that that is definitely possible and to see your drive it was really um, special. So I really appreciate you having shared as much as you did. Thank you. And actually, yeah. that's a huge piece and motivator too, right? Like for me, I don't have a lot of people I can call up and ask for help. You know, like I don't yeah. have a lot of women of color in business that ha- our founders that I know, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm working on building a network of support and I'm even thinking of starting some sort of women and coaching platform where we could all talk about our businesses and how to grow them. Right. Especially when you don't have access to a ton of the information and learning that could be made easier if you already had somebody that had done it. Right. Um, but for me, that was a huge motivator is being a woman of color and native of Guatemala, that it is the business owner of Chikamala. Um, yeah. There are so many fair trade and, you know, ethical businesses that claim, you know, those values where in reality you hear, you know, they're exploiting artisans or exploiting our resources, right? Like a story just came out of a French brand that paid uh, two artisan women in Oaxaca elders $10 to take photos in front, like with their products or something. I don't even think these are artisans that were creating their products, you know? So you always mm. see like all of these marketplaces that have products from India, from Guatemala, from Nicaragua, yeah. from Central America, from all of all over Central America, right? And, and maybe some Asian countries as well and Middle Eastern countries. And they're started by white women, right? Like the majority of the big ones are. 
Uh Um, And in reality, we needed that help. We needed that support. And it's awesome that they have those businesses that impact um, our countries financially. But there needs to be representation specifically from people that are from those countries because the level of relationship and care is, I can assure you, a thousand times different, right? Like for me, profit is important. And I I had a choice, right? Like, do I want to do a nonprofit or do I want to do a for-profit company? Yeah. For me, profit was extremely important, actually, because we need profit, again, to make a difference, right? So for me, having a for-profit company that had a model of, I guess, just inclusive and worldwide development was super important for me, right? Like we're driven by social equity. We're envisioning a future in which businesses used to reduce poverty, right? And, and promote development within communities that don't have access to these types of opportunities. So yeah. I'm reimagining and I don't, you know, I'm reimagining just the way and I'm creating new ways of doing business, right? Like, and, and there's no right or wrong way. I think that's what I've learned. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen, we've seen the way that co- some corporate America businesses ran, right? Like some businesses are ran, but it doesn't always have to be that way. Like you can yeah. throw your feminine spin into it. You can throw your emotions into it. You can throw your values, right? Like for me, throwing my value values into it was the number one thing. So for me, you know, eco-friendly products, sustainable, BIPOC owned, Latinx owned, uh, fair trade, right? Like the, having that ability to work towards equity, right? For, for the, for the people, right? So that they could become owners in a business that they're already without them is nothing, right? Like without them is right. nothing. So why they would I pretend? Yeah. yeah. Why would I pretend that mm-hmm. they shouldn't own, own it? Right. And, and actually we just yeah. started doing that model. We just got our first order for uh, bridal uh, robes. So we had a, mm. a bride get married in Antigua, Guatemala this weekend that bought seven uh, kimonos and bought a rug from Chicamala. She's going to get married on the rug and she wore the kimonos with her bridesmaids. Um, and we already started that, that program of like, Hey, we, we maybe don't have it set up legally, but the way that this is going to work is instead of me paying you for each product, which would be less money than what the order was, than what the full order was. Right. Like, so my half or my profit would be higher than what their profit would be. I was like, why should it be like that? Like, so we already did it with this order and every single order that we have, that's going to be wholesale for weddings in Guatemala starting now. 50 50. So, you know, there's yeah. ways of doing it where you're not maybe bringing most of the profit, even though you're buying the material and like, you know, like the website and like doing the work for getting the business, you're still not doing the products yourself, right? Like I'm not there right, right. weaving it myself. So I wanted to figure yeah. out a way where equity was at the center of everything. Um, and so we started that uh, payment model actually just this past week. We had a uh, they got 50% of all the profits of, you know, everything that they did. And that was significant. Um, wow. yeah, that is like literally the coolest wow. thing ever in business. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're like taking this totally new approach. This thing that people said can never be done in business, at least in American capitalism, which is when you start a business, the sole goal of that business is to maximize profit for the shareholders, which is, you know, the, the oh, owner yeah. and the employees. Right. And you're saying, no, that's not that's not the the sole goal of my business. The sole goal of my business is to provide uh equity for the people who are, you know, building this and giving them their props and also helping them, which is like, you know, it's just unheard of. Um so I'm I'm just like beaming with like excitement about this. Thank you. Creating representation for women of color founders in the United States is a huge motivator for me. Obviously, social equity and finding ways of giving back to the country that gave me so much, right? Like you heard me get super emotional when I immediately started talking about my grandparents and my life Mm -hmm. in Guatemala, like away from cell phones and technology. And it was just a simple life of love and caring for one another, community, you know, like we had our normal family stuff, but 
at the end of the day, we were there for each other, right? So being able to give back to my community is huge, specifically to the most underrepresented people, right, in that community. And now being able to look back and even notice some of those inequalities that you see so prominently shown in the U.S., right? You, you, we have those same inequalities in Guatemala, and it's not okay that it's within uh, the communities that had been there for centuries before mestizas, you know, existed or before, right. you know, other people came to to our land, right? Like to the to their land. Um, so to me, that's important is bringing them up with us, um, and I think that's why I specifically chose that line of business and, you know, to partner with them and to create an e-commerce website that is going to expand and it's going to continue showing people that, hey, not everything that you get from Guatemala and from Latin American countries needs to be cheap, especially if you're getting mm-hmm. things that are high quality. Like mm-hmm. there's always yeah, that that mindset, right? Like of, yeah. um, you know, Middle Eastern or Asian or Latin Latinx like products being cheap, right? Like, and yeah. where did we get that? Like, why, why is, why are we willing to pay $300 for a French brand, like jacket, but yeah. we're going to penny pinch for Latinx BIPOC owned businesses, right? Like right. or yeah. other cultures, that's just all part of the same systems and mindsets that were, you know, just pushed into our communities and society throughout the years. And so I also want to change that, right? Like not all Latinos are poor, not all, not all mm-hmm. Latinx people in the U S are poor. We're $1.7 trillion of pa- spending power here. So yeah, yeah. am I going to identify with my Latinx population and other populations that want a pop of color in their house? Probably. <laughs> so <laughs> if that's going to impact, uh, you know, communities in Guatemala, then that's what it's going to be. Right. And it's fun while I'm doing it. Like now I'm in the fun part now that everything's figured out and like, we just have to make sure things are getting here on time and like things are moving. Now I'm in, you know, like the designing part of thinking, Hey, what else do we want to create? And yeah. thinking of how to create the least amount of waste too, right? Like we're going to have some products that are going to be sold um, as a pre-order method. So instead of us making the bags and then having Mm. people buy them and then potentially like not sell all of them, we're going to do a pre-order to where the customer knows, Hey, you're going to get it in 30 days, but you're going to get a really high quality product. That's only going to be made for you because you wanted it. It's not a wasteful approach to business or, you know, more and more and more approach to business to where, you know, there's not going to be new lines every month. Like that's not the point of slow fashion. The point of slow fashion is for you to want a high quality product and be able to get it, but you know, you're going to wait for it and you know, you're going to pay for the labor too, because it takes a really long time to make it, you know? And I think that's other uh, mindset shifts that I'm having too. Like, Hey, things that are coming from Guatemala should not be, you shouldn't expect it to be cheaper. Like, because yeah, yeah. there's many hours that are involved in creating these incredible and high quality products. And not all Latinos are poor. So there's a lot of Latinx people <laughs> buying, uh, you know, yeah. $300 rugs because they want their mm-hmm. culture in their home. And yeah. Yeah. that's what we're going to give them. As they should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You hit on, yeah, hit on something special, like people wanting to have a bit of their culture in their home. Totally. And now I have a little bit of Guatemala in my home. Wardrobe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, to, just to wrap it up, I wanted to just like ask a question that we, we ask pretty often here, which is like, what would you say is your like cultural identity in terms of like if someone asks you, what are you? Are you Guatemalan? Are you American? Like, or are you nothing unidentified? Just, I like to hear people's responses to that. Yeah. And, you know, so funny because this is similar to the question, like, where are you from? Like, yes. whenever I respond to that question, I used to find myself in like the longest sentences, like, well, I'm from Gilroy, <laughs> yeah. but now I live in LA and I was born right. in Guatemala and I came here yes. when I was 11. And this is just a person that's like, yo, I just want to know where you live now. Like, you don't have to yeah. tell me your whole life story. Like, how far would you drive? So I, um, 
I am Guatemalan American. I'm always going to be Guatemalan. My heart is Guatemalan. My upbringing is Guatemala. My first five years, the most important developmental years in someone's life is 100% Guatemalan. I'm indigenous. I'm Spanish. I'm American. I'm Guatemalan. I am La Latina owned business owner. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, so I'm answer. Latina, Latinx, you know, don't really have a preference between those two, but True. definitely Guatemalan American and always Guatemalan. Love it. Love, Love it. Um, anything else before we wrap up? Any last questions? Yeah, I just really appreciate your story. Thanks, Thanks for sharing, sharing it with us. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Good luck on your business yeah. ventures. Yeah. I know you're going to be able to do yeah. it. And that's the whole <laughs> point, right? Like if you do it, other women of totally. color will do it. And more of us will be in those, those founder positions, which we desperately need, right? Like women usually, right. you know, we give more statistically to charity. Like we need more mm-hmm. women of color that are making some money moves. Thank you for that motivation. All right. Thanks again, Anna. This was an awesome conversation. Um, And yeah, definitely hope to keep in touch. Thank you. Shopchikamala.com. That's where you can find Shopchikamala. Shopchikamala. Amazing quality. (laughs) I'll link it in the podcast description as well. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Have a great Sunday. Bye. Of course. You too. Thanks for listening to the So What Are You podcast. If you like this episode, please feel free to rate and review and share with your friends. Also, if any of you are looking for a therapist in California, feel free to reach out to me, Ida, through the practice I work for, Therapy Now SF. The link is in the bio.